morning. Welcome to West Hills. So good to have all of you with us, and it's so good for me to be with you. And uh, my name is Will Duvall, lead pastor here. And uh, if I have not had a chance to meet you yet, I'd love that opportunity. Um, hang out in the foyer afterward. Please do introduce yourself uh, to me, especially if you're new. I got to meet a couple new folks already this morning. It's such a blessing. And uh, we'd love collectively as a church to, to, to meet you as well. And so uh, one just simple, you know, even for the introverts way to do that is uh, right there in your bulletins on your way in, you should have gotten a, a new to West Hills little note card. We'd love to have you fill that out and just give us your email. Uh, I promise all we'll send you is, is an email thanking you for being here. Uh, we'll give you a, a coffee mug as well if you, if you drop it at the info bar on your way out, out the double doors here. And uh, as a token of just, again, our gratitude for you being here to worship with us. And just to make it even extra easier for those of you who are new to not feel singled out right now, filling out a newcomer card, I just encourage everybody right now while I'm uh, talking to, to get those cards out. And uh, on the back there, you see a space for prayer requests and uh, for sermon application as well. And Thad can talk to you more about the sermon application at the end of the message today. Um, that's space for your response to what is God stirring up through his word in your heart this morning and how is he calling you to respond uh, in your life this week. Uh, but prayer requests as well. We would love to have prayer requests from all of you. We all need prayer and we as a church love to pray for you as the church. And so I just encourage everybody to grab a pen and uh, fill something out there that we, can, uh, that we can connect with you on this week about. What does it mean to be human? <clears throat> This is uh, one of the most fascinating and uh, weighty questions that we, as humans, all must ask and answer for ourselves at some point in our lives. In his recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Dr. Carl Truman traces the evolution of our understanding of the human self in the Western world throughout time. Truman says, for most of human history, our self-perception as a species could be best characterized as the tribal self. We defined ourselves in relationship to others, specifically those closest to us, our family of origin, our tribes. Equally foundational for most of human history was the concept of the worshiping self. We found our identity vertically in relationship to God or the gods, whoever or whatever it was that we worshipped. With the dawn of the discipline of philosophy in the 5th century BC in ancient Greece, we begin to see a new concept of the self emerge, the thinking self, the introspective self. Who I am is now far less defined by anything external to me, whether it be my community or the God I worship, than it is by what is internal to me. Look inside for who I am. And this was, of course, most epitomized, skipping way ahead in human history for the sake of time, by the famous French philosopher René Descartes, who famously said, I think, therefore, I am. Descartes identified human being with human thinking, with self-reflection. We had 18th century empiricism, 
emphasizing the discovering self. You had 19th century idealism emphasizing the subjective self. The Industrial Revolution gave us the working self. Marx, the communal self. Darwin, the animal self. Freud and Jung, the psychoanalyzed self. Postmodernism, the skeptical self. The sexual revolution, the liberated autonomous self, such that today we have arrived at a concept of self as a society that could fairly be described as the sovereign self. It is considered a basic human right in our society today to define one's own self, even to the exclusion of all science and reason. As Truman explains in his preface to his book, says the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful in today's world. That statement is, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. That statement less than 30 years ago would have caused nearly anyone to burst out laughing. They would have considered it incoherent gibberish. And yet today it is a sentence that many in our society regard not only as meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid and immoral. And that's because in today's world, self is king. No one else gets to tell me who I am, not even genetics. But as Christians, we know there's nothing new under the sun. Over three millennia ago, the book of Judges described the people of Israel in much the same way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. So everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When we have no king, when we reject God as our king, as the sovereign, then we inevitably become gods unto ourselves. This is the rise and triumph of the modern and the not-so-modern self, the sovereign self. And so we praise God for Sundays, that in a world that constantly seeks to indoctrinate us into its own governing worldview, Monday through Saturday, it tells you you are inherently a good person, that you therefore deserve happiness to live your life however you want to. Follow your heart, your desires, trust your gut, and surround yourself with people who will affirm your sense of self, whoever you decide that you are. We thank God for this weekly recentering reminder on Sundays of God's truth that you are, in fact, inherently sinful, that you deserve hell, that you cannot trust your own heart, but you can trust Jesus. And so you need to surround yourself with people who regularly will confront you about your own sin and your desperate need for the Savior. That's why we're here, right? That's what church is. But man, you, you juxtapose those two worldviews like that, and it's really not that hard to see why there are so few Christians today, is it? Why we can't even fill a building like this, despite our location and our beautiful, I mean, there's just so few of us. Sometimes the truth hurts, but boy, do we need it. 
We're in week three of our fall sermon series this morning, The Essentials, Foundations of the Christian Faith. So far, we've examined the first two foundations, the Bible and God, and it is based on those two bedrocks that we are going to continue to build this morning. Pillar number three, humanity. What does it mean to be human? And of course, for answers, we will turn not to society, not to human reason, our brains, or our guts, or our libidos, but we will turn to God's word. So I would invite you to do that with me now, and stand as you're able to this morning, respect for God's word. We'll be in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Some of you are getting nervous, thought we just finished Genesis a couple weeks ago. Back to the basics again. Genesis 1, 26, all the way through chapter 3, verse 21, but I've just pulled out selected excerpts, so your legs won't get too tired, hopefully. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one of those at the Envo Bar today. If you are a believer this morning, uh, I would invite you when we're done saying, uh, reading scripture together to respond with me out loud by affirming your faith in the Bible's definition of who we are as human beings. If you're not a believer, again, that's okay. Don't lie in church and recite along with us. Just listen. Just observe this morning. We're so glad you're here uh, exploring the Christian worldview for yourself. But first, hear the word of the Lord. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter 3 now, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. Your response, we believe that God created human beings in his own image or likeness, male and female, to care for, <clears throat> manage, and govern creation, and to live <clears throat> fellowship with and obedience to their creator. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And statement number four from our statement of faith. 
when Adam fell from his original sinless state through Satan's temptation, all humanity participated in the fall and are thus alienated from God, corrupt in every aspect of their being under God's righteous condemnation and in supreme need of being reconciled to God. Man's only hope is the undeserved love of this same God who alone can rescue and restore us to himself. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for the mirror that it holds up to our lives and our hearts, that we can rightly see ourselves in it and rightly see ourselves in relationship to you, a holy, perfect God. Father, would you help us to see ourselves rightly this morning? But would you help us even more to see Jesus as we work our way through our our statement of faith, through these chapters of Genesis? Would you help us to see Jesus, who, as we sang already, ready stands to save us with compassion, love, and power to restore us and make us whole again. We thank you for the grace and the mercy, the redemption that we find in Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated again. Christianity offers us uh, four answers to this question. What does it mean to be human? And speaking of essentials, all four of these answers or affirmations, as I will refer to them, all four are absolutely essential to a comprehensive understanding of the human person, of ourselves. That's what we're trying to do this morning, is to understand ourselves rightly, biblically. And we are going to trace these four this morning and conclude with the acknowledgement, the realization that these four affirmations about what it means to be human actually tell us the story of the gospel, the the good news, the most central of all the truths in the Christian faith. And so, let's answer the question together. What is a human? Well, for starters, number one, we are invaluable image bearers. We are invaluable image bearers. As we just affirmed from our statement of faith, God created human beings in his own image or likeness. What does it mean to be made in God's image? This is a good opportunity for me to remind you of one of my favorite uh, sources for biblical answers to uh, really important questions like this. You can always email me, but if you want to just cut out the middleman, you can go straight to uh, gotquestions.org. Great website. Here's how they answer it. Having the image of God means, in the simplest terms, that we were made to resemble God. Adam did not resemble God in the sense of having flesh and blood. Scripture says that God is spirit. Rather, the image of God refers to the immaterial part of humanity, our spirit. It sets human beings apart from the animal world. It fits us for dominion, the dominion that God 
intended for us to have over the earth and enables us to commune with our maker in a unique way. It is a likeness mentally, morally, and socially. So mentally, humanity was created as a rational, volitional agent. Human beings can reason and choose. This is a reflection of God's own intellect and freedom. Anytime someone invents a machine or writes a book, paints a landscape, enjoys a symphony, calculates a sum, or names a pet, he or she is proclaiming the fact that we were made in God's image. Morally, humanity was created in righteousness and perfect innocence, a reflection of God's own holiness. God saw all that he made, humanity included, and called it very good. In fact, it was only good until he made humanity. Then it became very good, holy good. Our conscience, our moral compass is a vestige of that original state. Whenever someone writes a law, recoils from evil, praises good behavior, or feels guilty, he or she is confirming the fact that we are made in God's own image. Socially, humanity was created for fellowship. This reflects God's triune nature and his love. We talked about this last week with who God is, his nature. In Eden, humanity's primary relationship was with God. Genesis 3.8 implies fellowship with God. That's where we hear about God coming down in the cool of the day to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, this beautiful picture of a relationship with God. And God made the first woman because it was not good for the man to be alone. First not good thing in creation. Solitary isolation. Every time someone marries, makes a friend, hugs a child, attends church, he or she is demonstrating the fact that we are made in the likeness of God. And to those three uh, affirmations about what it means to be made in the image of God, I want to add two additional ones this morning, important ways that we are like God according to both our statement of faith as well as Genesis 1 through 3. We are like him vocationally and we're like God taxonomically. Let me explain. Vocationally, humans were created, at least in part, to work, to care for, manage, and govern creation, as our statement of faith says, to subdue the earth, have dominion over it, to work the garden and keep it, as Genesis 1 and 2 say. Even God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it's a reflection of God's own image in us. God is both a productive and a reproductive God. He works to, f- to create the earth, and then he keeps on working to fill the earth by multiplying creatures. And God declares, humans, you should too, as my image bearers. And so God's first two commandments then are, have babies and do work. Produce and reproduce, and every time we do it, we procreate or cultivate, we display the image of God in which we've been made. Fifthly, taxonomically, humans were created in two different classifications, two different ordered categories, male and female. The parallelism in the three lines of Genesis 1.27 make it clear that this is part of what it means for us to be made in the image of God. God created man, Adam, mankind collectively, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. In other words, while God is not a man or a woman, we must affirm that both Our masculinity, our femininity are derived from, are equally derived from, 
They are separately but equally derived from who God is, his very nature, and complementarily so as well. In other words, we would have an incomplete picture of who God is if he had only made men or if he had only made women. So while God is not male, the fact that I am is a very significant part of what it means for me personally to be made in the image of God. God is not female. And yet, for those of you who are, you would not reflect the image of God in the, in the beautiful way you've been created to without your femininity. And con- this is in stark contrast to what our surrounding society today tells us. That it really doesn't mean anything to be a man or a woman, to be male or female, that they're just identical. The words are beginning to lose all meaning and, and purpose. In contrast to that, we affirm as believers that they're not the same thing. At a linguistic level, we wouldn't have two different words if they weren't different things. At an anatomical level, there wouldn't be penises and vaginas if we were all identical. And at an ontological level, men and women are different. The word of God is not unclear about this. Male and female, he created them. God created Adam to work the garden, Genesis 2.15. He created Eve to be a suitable helper for Adam, Genesis 2.20. Elsewhere in scripture, you can see especially Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Titus 1 and 2, Proverbs 31, so many others, God calls Men, specifically, to protect and provide for and lead their families, including the church family. God calls women to please, to serve, to submit to their husbands. While it is true that there are biblical examples of and exhortations to women in certain contexts to protect, provide, and lead, as well as to men, to please and serve and submit, on the whole, those are our separate but equal God-appointed gendered roles. And if you think that that somehow makes women inferior to men, that's because you're thinking with a worldly mind, not with a biblical, godly mind. Because God both leads and serves us. Jesus both protects us and he submitted. He submitted all the way into death for us. In fact, Jesus eternally protects us because, precisely because he submitted to the Father's plan on the cross. So submission is only a bad word in the world. And here, in the church, and in God's word, it's a beautiful thing. It's a godly thing. It's a made-in-the-image-of-God thing. And so that's what it means to be made in the image of God, to resemble him mentally, morally, socially, vocationally, and taxonomically. But perhaps the most important thing of all to say about being in the image of God is not the what, but the why. Why did God make us in his image? And our statement of faith answers that question by affirming that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. According to God's word, Isaiah 43, 7, God created us for his glory. We're made in his image to bring God glory. When we think, feel, behave, work, relate as reflections of God's own nature, we are bringing him glory. My daughter brings me glory, at least in part because I see myself in her. 
Now, for me, that's probably selfish. For God, the greatest good that God can be after in all of creation is his own glory. Because God is the greatest good in all of, outside of creation. So in a, in a somewhat analogous way that I see myself in my daughter, and that brings me glory, she brings me glory, her intelligence, her inquisitiveness, her determination, her competitiveness, of course, her physical attractiveness. <laughs> I see myself in my son, too, by the way. Joke that he inherited my receding hairline. Son is adopted, for those of you who are new. Even though he is adopted, nature is only half of the picture. Nurture plays a big role as well in who we are, our identity. If I do my job right as a parent, by God's grace, my son will over time more and more begin to image me. Because like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, I'm going to tell my son, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm going to reflect Jesus to you in the way that I live, in a way that you ought to imitate, model, pattern your life, the way you think, feel, behave, relate after me because I'm seeking to reflect Jesus to you. Now, speaking of nature versus nurture, Ephesians 2 says that you and I were by nature children of wrath. But now we've been adopted into a new family. So Paul says, act like it. Image it, reflect it, live your life in such a way as to reflect your Father God's glory for all the world to see. Again, that's why we're here, and you know that it's true what they say. You are the only Bible that most of the people around you in the world today will ever read, will ever see. I don't know if you notice, but the Bible is becoming an increasingly unpopular book. They ain't reading it. But they may still have a relationship with you. And that means it's increasingly important for us as believers to show the world what God is like in the way that we represent him. We image him. Reflect his glory to them. Do they see God in us? In you? That's why he created us. To be mirrors reflecting his glory to the world. To be mannequins imaging him. Last point here. Super quick, super important. Because we are all made in God's image, that means that not just Christians, but every single person, we are all invaluable in worth in God's eyes. Every single human being has infinite dignity, and worth simply because we've been made in the image of God. The unborn baby and the abortionist who murders her. The white nationalist and the Black Lives Matter rioter. The wife-beating male chauvinist and the non-binary lesbian feminist activist. Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Who is the hardest person for you to imagine being in the image of God, having intrinsic value? Maybe for you, if you're honest, you even struggle to see them as a person. Subconsciously, we dehumanize others. 
so that we can hate them or write them off less than a person. Who is it? A Taliban? Your boss? Every single one of them has infinite value and worth in God's eyes simply because he has made them in his own image. No matter how poorly they may reflect it, no matter how badly they've, they've corrupted it, marred the image of God inside them. And that's a great segue to point number two, affirmation number two. Concerning what it means to be human, we are corrupted sinners. We're all corrupted sinners. Though we were made to image God, to reflect God, quote, when Adam fell from his original sinless state through Satan's temptation, all humanity participated in the fall and are thus alienated from God, corrupt in every aspect of their being under God's righteous condemnation. Now, hold on for a minute. Because we know Adam sinned. We read that together in Genesis 3, corrupted, tainted, marred the image of God that he was made to reflect. But our statement of faith just made a pretty big jump there. From Adam sinning to all of humanity participating in the fall and thus being alienated from God, corrupt in every way. That seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? Be honest, Christian. Does that seem even unfair a little bit? The question really isn't whether it's harsh or even unfair. The question for us is Bible-believing followers of God is whether or not it's true. Is it biblical? Romans 5, verses 12 through 19. says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Many died through one man's trespass. The judgment through that one man. Following the one trespass brought condemnation. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Romans 5.19, by that one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So it is true, biblically, that you and I are not just sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful. And we are sinful because of our father, Adam, the one man. Ephesians 2, verse 3, again, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are all born with a sinful nature. David confessed this. In Psalm 51, verse 5, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. King David was not the product of some illicit sexual affair. He was just a human. Like you and me and everyone who has ever been born, ever been conceived, except for Jesus. This is why his virgin birth was so important. But other than Jesus, every human who has ever been conceived was a child of Adam, a corrupted sinner by nature, our very nature. In Christianity, we sometimes call this original sin. And every parent in the room said, amen. Because I don't have to 
prove to any of you who are parents the truth of original sin. You don't have to teach a kid to sin. You don't have to teach her to care more about herself than others, to follow his own heart instead of God's heart. That just comes naturally to us, right? Anyone crazy enough to believe that people are all basically good deep down has not spent much time around a toddler or a teenager or a person. (laughs) As Romans 3 diagnoses, All are under sin. Sin is a curse, a generational curse that we have all inherited. It's genetic. Thanks a lot, Adam. But we miss the point if we do that, if we wag our fingers at Adam. Adam and Eve were simply representatives of all of humanity. In other words, you put me and you in the garden, we make the exact same wrong choice. Because not only are all under sin, but all have sinned as well. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. We're under sin and we have sinned. We're sinful because we sin and we're, we sin because we're sinful. It, they're really both true. Romans 3, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we failed to bring God the glory to reflect his glory in the way that we were created to. We are all broken mirrors. We're marred mannequins. Romans 3 goes on, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. Not valueless, still invaluable, but but worthless. No one does good. As a mirror, we have no worth now. We, We can't reflect God's glory in the way that we are intended to. No one does good, not even one. And so 1 John 1, 8 summarizes, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so, what should we say? Is that it? We had our shot. God made us in his image, very good, holy good image to reflect his glory, but we fell short. We dropped the ball, we broke the mirror, and now we're just doomed forever. We're corrupted under the, the curse of sin and its rightful consequence, condemnation? No. That's not how the story ends, is it? Praise God for affirmation number three, that though we are all corrupted sinners, we are also undeserving beneficiaries. We are undeserving beneficiaries. Now, our statement of faith won't clear this up until next week in sermon number four in the series, God's plan of salvation for people. But our statement of faith hints at this and foreshadows it this morning. And since it would make a really terrible end to the sermon today, if I left you with just the bad news, you're all corrupted sinners. I hope you make it until next week so I can give you the good news and you at least have the chance to trust in Jesus and be saved. Don't get hit by any buses this week. Rather than do that, I'm going to take the liberty of making explicit what our core doctrine number three here leaves implicit when it states that all humanity is in supreme need of being reconciled to God. Man's only hope is the undeserved love of this same God who alone can rescue and restore us to himself. And I want to make it absolutely clear to you this morning that God has done it. He's done it. He's reconciled us, rescued us, restored us, redeemed us. 
God has done it in the sacrificial death and the victorious resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. God has done it for you. Amen. As a corrupted sinner, you rightfully deserve the condemnation of a holy God, separation from a perfect God, and eternity in hell. But the good news of the gospel is that you are the undeserving beneficiary of Jesus' own substitutionary atoning death in your place. That means that on the cross, Jesus willingly took the punishment that was owed you because of your sin on his shoulders, and instead he gives you his righteousness so that you might be reconciled, rescued, redeemed, restored. That's the gospel. In fact, for all who are spiritually reborn by grace, through faith, in Christ, he has actually renewed the image of God in you now. Your sin nature is still there too. We see Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrestle with this in Romans 7. I've got these two natures at war in me. Sin nature is still there too. But now God exhorts us to put off that old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Ephesians 4, 24, put on the new nature, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We get recreated in God's image because of Jesus, because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. This is the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we have been made new and inherited new life, eternal life, as undeserving beneficiaries of God's grace in his son Jesus. I want you to listen to how all of those passages that I quoted for you in point number two about how, what corrupted sinners we are, I want you to listen to the other half of all of those passages. I, uh, I just kind of cherry-picked and pulled out all the bad stuff for you. Um, the apostles are much more uh, gracious than that. They like, can't even wait to tell you the good news. They don't make you wait another 10 minutes in the sermon to like, be comforted with the good news. But, but this is the, the other half, the rest of the story from every single one of those passages in the New Testament I just read. That yes, it is true, Ephesians 2, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. You were by nature children of wrath, like I told you, like the rest of mankind. But, verse 4, but, here's the good news, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Yes, it's true, Romans 5, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. It's true that many died through one man's trespasses. But here's the good news. How much more so have the grace of God and the free gift of God by that other one man, Jesus Christ, abounded now for many. Yes, the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Justification is a legal term that means to be declared righteous, not to be righteous. You're not righteous. Paul already established that. No one's righteous, but you're declared righteous in Christ. 
by faith in him. Justification for if because of one man's trespasses death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man Jesus Christ. Yes, it's true, Romans 3, that all are under sin, that none is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the good news, that we are justified, again, declared righteous, by his grace as a free gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, substitutionary atonement by his blood, to be received by faith so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And yes, it is true, 1 John 1, 8, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're all sinful, corrupted. But it's also true, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, simply on the basis of our faith in Jesus. So if all of that is true of us, friends, and it is, that we are invaluable image bearers, created to glorify God, who instead pursued our own glory and our sinful rebellion against God, and thus we corrupted the image of God within us, but who have nevertheless, in spite of ourselves, received undeserved grace and mercy and favor and forgiveness and love. All the re's of Scripture, rebirth, renewal, redemption, recreation in God's image, reconciliation, rescue, restoration, resurrection. If that's who we are now, we've inherited it all in Christ, then where does that leave us? How ought we then to live? We live as grateful children. As grateful children. John 1 tells us exactly who we are, or at least who we can be. To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to be human? I can tell you what it can mean for you to be human. That's the beautiful truth we already proclaimed in song together this morning. As I'm a child of God, yes I am. As I'm chosen, not forsaken, who the sun sets free is free indeed. And now I will live out my freedom the rest of my days in gratitude, eternal gratitude for the Son of God because I've become a child of God. Friends, the only other option is to be an ungrateful rebel. We make things really confusing, complex. We like to think that, you know, in our hubris, pride as a species, we like to think that we're really so complex and you know, it can mean many things to be a human, and we're so... There's really only two types of humans. There's grateful children, and there's ungrateful rebels. That's it. 
And only affirmations one and two are universally true for all of humanity. Everyone here and everyone out there is an invaluable image bearer. Everyone here, everyone out there, we're all corrupted sinners. But according to Jesus, only a very few will become undeserving beneficiaries of his eternal life. The path is narrow because only a few are truly grateful children who have received him by faith simply, faith like a child, and have therefore been given the right to become children of God. Is that you this morning? Is that you? Can you, can you sing those verses, those choruses that we sang together this morning, can you sing it in sincerity from a pure heart, from a heart that's been redeemed in the image of God through Jesus? You are an image bearer. You are a corrupted sinner. Are you a child of God? I pray you are.